Hey listeners, today we're talking about Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. As you probably know, this play ends tragically, with the two star-crossed lovers taking their own lives. Today's episode includes a conversation about using this play as a bridge to discuss mental health and suicide with high schoolers. We believe this is an important part of the conversation about this play, but if this topic is triggering for you, we recommend skipping ahead about three minutes starting at minute 26. All right, let's get into the episode. Welcome to Novel Pairings, a podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. Each episode, we'll discuss one classic book and share some recommendations for more contemporary reads that feature similar themes. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Hi, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. I'm so, so excited to talk about Romeo and Juliet today. This is just one of my favorite classics of all time. I'm excited because I haven't thought much about this classic until we started preparing for this episode, but I know it's one of your favorites, which makes me really excited to learn from you. I have a lot to say about Romeo and Juliet, but I think we should start with our very important question. All right, let's do it. What are your thoughts on insta-love? So I think we should define that a little bit. It's typically, I think, found in young adult novels or romance. And the concept behind insta-love is basically love at first sight. Or the characters just fall in love with each other super quickly. And the association with insta-love is that it's not as realistic, perhaps. So I actually think I feel kind of indifferent about it compared to people who have really passionate opinions. <laughs> yeah, it's something I hear a lot of other readers complain about. Um, I think you're right that it's predominantly in young adult literature that we see characters who immediately are drawn to each other after a single sight. I guess I do find it annoying when I encounter it in books like one after the other, then I'll start rolling my eyes. But if it's sprinkled into a book that I pick up and I haven't encountered it elsewhere in a while, it doesn't bother me too much. Yeah, it depends on the type of read that I'm looking for. If I am down for something just cute and cozy and, you know, romancy, I'm happy to suspend disbelief for certain books, especially if there are other important themes or good humor that sort of bolster it so that it's not just built on insta-love. I think that's a great point. Like, insta-love isn't the kind of thing that I look for in a book that's exploring the complexities of relationships, but in terms of a cozy comfort read, I don't mind it. And now that I've started reading more romance and I see the tropes of how you know which couples belong together right away, that's not necessarily love at first sight. It maybe is love at first sight for the reader, knowing who belongs together. I enjoy that element of a romance. That's a good point. It totally depends on the tropes and the patterns present in the book. And I just think some books do it really well. And the ones that do it well are more of the instant connection 
and then the love builds throughout the rest of the story. Yes, I think that is a great way to describe it. Romeo and Juliet is maybe the reigning king of insta-love, so we'll talk a little bit more about that once we get into the plot of this play. Yes, I'm really curious to hear what your past experience is with Romeo and Juliet, Sarah. Okay, so I definitely read this book, this play, in high school. I think freshman year I read it. This is one of the few books that I have really clear memories of reading in high school. I remember always volunteering to read different parts and being upset when I didn't get to be Juliet in class that day. (laughs) (laughs) I remember watching the Baz Luhrmann adaptation in school. I just remember so much about it. I even remember specific things about the language that my high school English teacher told us about Romeo and Juliet. But I haven't revisited this play at all since. Even though I have taught other Shakespeare plays, I've taken classes on Shakespeare, but we never revisited this play either in any of my college classes or grad school classes. It is taught at the high school where I work. It's in the freshman curriculum but I've just never had the opportunity to teach it. How about you? What's your experience with this one? I also first encountered it freshman year of high school, and I think that is the most typical time for people to read it. And I I remember enjoying it, and I remember, like you said, reading out loud in class, and sort of that being the first introduction to Shakespeare and his language and his world. And then since freshman year of high school, my memories of Romeo and Juliet have been overtaken by my teaching experience. (laughs) I bet. So I taught Romeo and Juliet five years in a row and absolutely loved every minute of it. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Um, So I taught it actually first as a student teacher And then I taught it four years in a row teaching freshmen in high school. And it was just the most fun. I always taught it in the spring. There's something about the spring fever when the kids are all starting to pair off with each other and their hormones are raging that fits so perfectly with reading this play. It's so true. It sounds like we're making this up, but we are not. That is the thing that happens in high schools in the spring. It's completely real. (laughs) (laughs) So channeling that energy into something that, you know, can be performed in class, because literally there's just so much energy and hormones buzzing around. You have to channel it somewhere. So absolutely (laughs) channeling it towards Romeo and Juliet had it just always worked out really well. And I just loved the conversations that came up with it because I was teaching it, you know, four to six times a day for several years in a row. I've read it a bazillion times, but every single read I would realize or discover something new. Oh, that's so fun. And uh, I've also seen it performed live once. I'm trying to remember where that was. I think I was in Atlanta at uh, Shakespeare Theater. So I tend to really remember any live performances of Shakespeare plays that I've seen. Those stick in my mind. Although I do really love 
the movie adaptations of Romeo and Juliet. And I used both of those, the Baz Luhrmann and the, yeah, the Zeffirelli from the 60s. I used both of those frequently. So I love this play. I love teaching it. I miss teaching it. <laughs> oh, that's so fun. You're making me want to teach freshmen, which I've never said out loud. In fact, I hope my department chair isn't listening to this. I was going to say, you might want to take that back. I might cut that. (laughs) So this is one of those stories that it seems like everybody knows on some level. But should we give a brief summary to catch people up just in case they haven't thought about this play in a while? Maybe just like super quick. So we have the Montagues and the Capulets, and they hate each other. (laughs) And I think the important thing for people to know is that Romeo is a Montague, and Juliet is a Capulet. That always bothered me. Juliet, Capulet. I just... It's fine. (laughs) That's the only way I could get it to stick in my students' brains is that we repeated that. (laughs) Maybe that's what Shakespeare had in mind all along. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Actually, should we just read the prologue? Because that's the entire summary of the play. Let's do it. I should have it memorized by now. I probably do, but I don't want to attempt. I bet you do, but don't risk it. (laughs) All right. According to the prologue, which is an entire summary of the play... And I always have fun having students read that and (laughs) figuring out what it means. And then they're like, oh, they both die? Why are we going to read this? (laughs) Two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona where we lay our scene. From ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life whose misadventured, piteous overthrows doth with their death bury their parents' strife. The fearful passage of their death-marked love and the continuance of their parents' rage, which but their children's end not could remove, is now the two hours' traffic of our stage. The which, if you with patient ears attend, what here shall miss, our toil shall strive to mend. You read that so well. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. Actually, my favorite clip of the prologue is from Shakespeare in Love. Oh, yeah. And that's, I think that's such a fun take on the prologue. Anyway, people might have to look that one up and watch it. It's on YouTube. I love that movie. So good. I kind of forgot about it as we were prepping for this episode, but it totally is, I mean, I would count it as a Romeo and Juliet adaptation. Oh, totally. I I love the way well it's written by tom stoppard who also wrote rosencrantz and guildenstern are dead which is probably my favorite shakespeare adaptation it's a play on hamlet but yeah it's so good that movie shakespeare in love probably need to rewatch that this weekend yes now i want to too (laughs) (laughs) yeah so if If you missed anything from the prologue, we have Romeo and Juliet, their families hate each other, but they fall in love, and then they end up dying, and then their families like each other again. The end. It sounds like not a lot, but in fact, there's a lot of drama that unfolds. It takes place in a really brief window of time, and so the action of the play actually feels very propulsive and fast. Yes, it it definitely moves pretty quickly. So as we've mentioned, this 
does seem to be one of those works of literature that nearly everyone in the English-speaking world, at least, has some experience with. And mostly when we talk about it, we talk about the plot and the major things that happen. But on my re-read slash watch, because I'm not going to lie, I didn't reread the whole play for this, what stood out to me most were the characters of Romeo and Juliet and how maybe I had misinterpreted them when I was a younger reader. So what are your impressions of Romeo and Juliet as characters? Oh, I'm really curious now that you said you think maybe you misinterpreted them as a young reader. (laughs) Um, I can start with that if you'd prefer. Yeah, I'm just too intrigued. It's going to bug me until you say what you mean. (laughs) Well, I think that when I was a younger reader, when I read it in high school, I, I definitely, I'm sure with the guidance of my teacher, could tell that Shakespeare wasn't glorifying or glamorizing this love, that he was, this was more of a cautionary tale than a real true love story. Although, of course, it can be a little bit of both. But so I think I saw Romeo and Juliet as characters kind of on equal footing when I read it in high school, that they were both making dumb mistakes, that they were both rash, that they were both impulsive. And I know you're shaking your head. And then when I'm watching it the second time and then going back and looking at a couple passages, I'm thinking, man, Juliet, she's got it together. She's calm, level-headed. I mean, of course she makes some impulsive decisions as well, but she is much more rational and clear-minded than Romeo. And I was really struck by that in this revisit. Yeah, he's a mess. He is a mess. And he... He messes everything up. Yes. But I also find him so, what is he, like 15? Yeah, I think we we know that Juliet is 13, but we never learn Romeo's age, I I think. But I, I've always heard it presumed that he was 15, 16, somewhere around there. I mean, in my experience teaching uh, freshman boys, it's pretty true to life. <laughs> That's, I, I teach all girls, so, you know, I wouldn't know, but. <laughs> it's, and I will say, like, I, I think that there is definitely a gender stereotype that girls mature faster than boys, and I think that's really a harmful um, societal expectation that we have in a lot of ways, but I do think that that's how Romeo and Juliet function in the place, certainly. Totally. And I also, I always think it's interesting because there's this idea that girls are super emotional. Yes. Um, I find that, I mean, and I'm mostly speaking from experience of teaching teenagers, and I grew up with a brother too, and we were only two years apart, so we were both teens at the same time. Uh, Boys are super emotional. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I was thinking while I was watching was that Romeo is the romantic. He's the emotional one. He's the hysterical one. I hate that word, but if if it applies to anyone in this play, it's definitely him. And Juliet is not. She's none of those things. 
Yeah, she's emotional in the sense that she follows her heart to be with him, but her decisions are pretty rational. Even the way that she talks to him is she's the one who's trying to kind of slow things down a little bit when he's trying to speed things up. Yep. And yeah, so with Romeo, we also get a little bit more backstory on him at the opening of the play. So the play opens and we get Romeo talking to his best friend, Benvolio, about, hey, there's this girl, Rosalind, and I love her, but she's breaking my heart because she's going to go become a nun and she's taking this vow of chastity and what do I do? And he's all, he's (laughs) emotional already and his parents are worried because he's walking around and he seems really depressed and all it takes is one party and a new girlfriend for him to just turn it right around. Yeah, I definitely remember that discussion from my own English classes, how Romeo is totally fickle, completely inconsistent. He was head over heels for Rosalind at the beginning of the play. I think it's wonderful that Shakespeare gives us that scene. It tells us so much about Romeo's character and really impacts how we think about him and love for the rest of the play yeah definitely it it sets that expectation of well like you said before that it's a cautionary tale from Shakespeare not necessarily a story of oh this is true love we need to hold this up as the purest example of love right away we get the sense that Shakespeare is going to be kind of silly with Romeo and that love isn't going to be taken too seriously and I really love whenever Shakespeare's playing on so many different levels like that. Yes, I think that is where you see a lot of his real genius. Okay, I'm going to turn to Juliet a little bit. And I think something that's really interesting, so first we get a scene with Romeo and we see him being emotional and fickle, and then we get the scene with Juliet, and she is being pretty cool-headed. Her mother tells her that she is promised and betrothed to Paris, and Juliet is basically like, well, I wasn't really thinking of getting married anytime soon, but I'll meet him and I'll give it a shot. (laughs) Very respectful, very reasonable. Very. She doesn't, I mean, she's not, she doesn't seem angry about an arranged marriage. I mean, that's her, she knows what her, her job is as the daughter of a wealthy man at that time. And she's, she is very, that's a very logical thing. And then when she finds out at the party that Romeo is a Montague, she's like, oh, well, my, you know, that is done and I'm going to be really sad about it. And I honestly think she would have gotten over it if he didn't show up again to talk to her. I think you're right. That seems to be what she is beginning to go through in that famous balcony scene. She's acknowledging her emotions. She doesn't seem to be wallowing at that moment. No, I don't think so. And meanwhile, Romeo runs off from his friends and is like, bye guys, I need to take care of something because my life is over if I do not have her. (laughs) So the Lerman version, I kind of love because we actually get to see his relationship with his guy friends a little bit more. And Mercutio is my favorite favorite. Okay, I want to talk about that, the whole group of guys and Mercutio. Quick question about the Lerman adaptation. I'm curious what you think about this. In that adaptation, Mercutio gives Romeo 
a drug as they go into the Capulet party. And so he meets Juliet when he's on drugs. And I'm wondering what you think about that choice. I think partly because the characters are playing older in that adaptation. Yes. There's that sense of, you know, maybe they should know better compared to, because I don't really think they're exactly teenagers. They're like maybe approaching early 20s in that adaptation. And so, I mean, it's a really interesting director's choice. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it could thematically be one of his ways of suggesting, is this true love? Is it just infatuation? What's clouding his mind as he sees Juliet for the first time? But I, I was struck by that and wondered if there are, I'm sure there are Shakespeare scholars who take great issue with that choice. Yeah, I wonder. I'm sure someone wrote about it somewhere. Okay, so back to Mercutio. What do you love about this character? I just think he gets all the best lines and speeches of the play. Oh, totally. He's clearly Shakespeare's favorite character. Yes, he gets that fabulous Queen Mab speech. So good. And then he's the one who gets to scream a plague on both your houses, which is just the best. <laughs> it is the best. It's it's one of the greatest lines in literature, I think. He gets an epic death scene, and I think that that's so much fun. And I think especially the way that Shakespeare treats that and just gets to sort of have him have that last word of vengeance is fabulous. I just really love Mercutio and I I have a lot of fun when reading the play. His lines always just stand out to me and I just think he's got such a big personality. He does. He really does. And I know this is a Romeo and Juliet episode, not a Shakespeare in Love episode, but I do love that component of Shakespeare in Love where, is it Ben Affleck? I forget. It's been so long since I've seen it. But the main actor in this theater troupe has been assigned the role of Mercutio. And so, and (laughs) Shakespeare has told him that the play is called Mercutio, so he would agree (laughs) to perform it. And I just love that so much because it's this real wink and a nod to Shakespeare lovers and Romeo and Juliet lovers who really, I think, do have that soft spot for Mercutio and feel like he steals the show. He does. He's the most dramatic character of the play. And that's saying something because Romeo's pretty dramatic too. Oh, yes. But I, yeah, I just think he's so much fun. And I love, whenever I was teaching, the Queen Mab speech was always one of my favorite days. And then, of course, the sword fight and death scene was so much fun. Yeah, and in Mercutio's drama, he's kind of a playful sort of dramatic. I mean, obviously the death scene and a plague on both your houses is real intense tragedy and drama, but he's a little ironic. He's a little playful, whereas Romeo takes himself so seriously. It's more of the eye-rolly sort of drama than the fun sort of drama that Mercutio gives us. Definitely. This is under the category of tragedy when we're talking about Shakespeare's plays, 
we have comedies, tragedies, and histories. But even the tragedies always have some element of comedy, and Mercutio is the source of that big time in Romeo and Juliet. Yes, Mercutio and our nurse, Juliet's nurse. Yes, Juliet's <laughs> nurse. I think another character that often steals the scene or steals the show whenever she's on stage. So to get us back to Romeo and Juliet as characters here, I think it's clear that they're not necessarily our favorites, but they are the main people here. <laughs> yeah, and I I don't love and adore these characters, but I think they're great characters. They lead to excellent discussions, and they're really fun to analyze. They definitely do. And every I will say, every time I read the play, I do love Juliet more and more. And I, I think that she gets a bad rep just because of how overdramatic Romeo is and just because of the end of the play. But I think that's unfair to her. Yeah, I agree. So let's just talk about the famous death scene because one of the most important parts of Romeo and Juliet is the fact that Romeo and Juliet both die at the end. Along with several others. Yes. There's there's a lot of death going on. <laughs> but theirs is the most important, and that scene is so iconic. It is. And I will say, so, well, let's just give a little bit of a summary. So part of the plan is that Juliet took a drug that makes her seem like she's dead, and everybody's mourning her. And the idea is that she and Romeo are going to run away together. But when he returns and sees, oh no, she's dead, he didn't get the memo. Literally. <laughs> Literally did not get the memo. And he thinks she's truly dead. So he first kills himself and then Juliet comes out of her dead sleep, realizes, oh my goodness, Romeo is dead. And then she kills herself. Yes. It's a tragedy. It's extremely tragic. It is. The last couple of years that I taught this, I started to bring in lessons on suicide into the classroom because oh. I I had a lot of students with mental health issues that I was aware of, and I just felt really uncomfortable about the suicide portion of this play in a new way when I started teaching it compared to reading it as a student myself. That's so interesting. And as you're saying that, I'm really wondering how the teachers at my own school deal with this now, because there have been books that teachers have pulled from their curriculum at my school because they deal with suicide, including The Awakening and The Bell Jar, but I have never heard Romeo and Juliet brought up in that discussion. I think because there is no mental illness component in the play... It gets excused a lot. Their deaths are pure rash action. But I, suicide is such a complicated issue, and there are so many factors around it that I just got more and more uncomfortable teaching that end scene without including some component of instruction on, on suicide and without including some instruction. And a lot of a lot more delicate care with that scene towards the end. I think that makes so much sense. I think that is a really smart and appropriate way to enter that conversation that I think 
is important for students to be having in classrooms as well. Well, and especially because we we would get to the end of the play and they both die and the knee-jerk reaction that my students always have is, that was so stupid. Why did they do that? (laughs) I was like, "Uh, well, why did you post those private pictures on Snapchat the other night? (laughs) They do dumb things too. They just don't equate it to, you know, that level. Yes, that's such a good point. What a what a true teaching moment. And the thing is, specifically teaching about how teenagers' brains and suicide coincide like that because their teenage brains are literally not developed. Right. And that's a big factor that comes into play when we're talking about mental illness. And I I think making the kids aware of that is something that was really interesting. And they, of course, don't, you know, they think that they're fully grown. (laughs) Of course they do. Um, And so, yeah, teaching this play always brings up some interesting conversations with the end. But in a broad cultural sense, I just think that it's fascinating to me that this play and that the end of this play specifically is so famous and so widely known. It is fascinating. I wonder what that says about the fact that we're still so drawn to this story and to that ending. I think one thing is, I mean, there are lots of different definitions of tragedy and we could get real academic about that here. But to me, when I think of a tragedy, I'm thinking of something, a story an ending that could have been easily avoided and was not just from one mistake or one missed opportunity. And Romeo and Juliet really nails that component. They were so close to being able to be together. And if one, just one tiny thing had gone right, if Romeo had gotten that message that he, that was intended for him, this wouldn't have happened. And I think even now, when I rewatched the movie last night, every time I'm like, oh, maybe this time he'll get that <laughs> note. <laughs> and I won't have to see Claire Dane's chin quiver for five minutes. <laughs> but he never gets the note. And that that sticks with you. It's a it's a visceral reaction, I think. Completely true. And you're right. There's always that that hope that, oh, maybe it's going to go the right way. I'm sorry, but all my experience with this play is just, I think, to how my students react to it. And you do, there's always a camp of like the devastated ones versus then it moves from devastation to how are they so stupid? Yes, totally. And, and as you said, I think that's a really good thing to talk about with teenagers is how these decisions that get made in the spur of the moment can really impact them and and the fact that they're making decisions without all of the information or without thinking things entirely through. Do you think that's why this is a play that everyone reads in high school? I doubt that that's the main reason why. If people were justifying it as a choice in their curriculum, I mean, that's definitely something that I would give as a reason for why I love to teach it. But I don't know that it's why it's been taught for a hundred years in classrooms. 
Yeah, I think you're right. I think that modern teachers, that's probably a big reason why why they're continuing to teach this. Probably that was less the case even 50, 30 years ago. It was probably then more about the fact that there was the belief that everyone needed to be exposed to Shakespeare's works. And maybe this is one that's more accessible for younger readers. Well, I do think it's probably one of the only books that I read in the high school classroom for school where the characters were around my age. Yes, I talk about that with my students and my colleagues often about how rarely they encounter characters who are their age. I really wish that Romeo and Juliet wasn't the only example of that. And I think for many students whose teachers are aware of that, they're trying to add more books with teen characters. But yeah, for me, I think in high school, this probably was the only one. Maybe Catcher in the Rye. Did I read that? In? I don't even remember. But those are the two classics with teen protagonists that I can think of. Oh yeah, I forgot about Catcher in the Rye, but that's one of my books that I kind of hate. So, <laughs> Oh, me too. That'll be so fun to talk about. Yeah, that's going to make a fun episode. <laughs> I think exposure to Shakespeare is definitely a big factor in why this one is taught. And I think you're right that this one has a lot of... I think it's partly accessible because the plot does move along pretty quickly and there are big things that happen. This one isn't I think with Shakespeare's comedies, those are more complicated to teach to teenagers because there's a lot more dialogue and personal things happening rather than like big life events or sword fights or exciting death scenes. <laughs> yes, that's so true. And with the comedies, so much is dependent on cultural knowledge and knowledge of the language that you have to explain pretty much all of the jokes to the kids. And once you explain a joke, it's just not funny anymore. True. Although if you explain what Samson and Gregory are talking about when they're saying, I'll cut off their heads, the heads of the maids, their maiden <laughs> heads, and their swords, uh, teenagers do like when you explain what that means. I bet they do. <laughs> um, but I think beyond that, this play really does tackle some big human themes. We've got fate and free will. We have destiny. We have love. And I think that those are concepts that we're still exploring in literature, but they really come to a head in this play. Absolutely. And I think those are the kinds of big concepts that teenagers are thinking about and wrestling with. And we don't often give them enough credit for the fact that they really have a lot of those big things on their mind. They do. And I I don't think we give teenagers enough credit in their own relationships with each other either because we, you know, we we patronize it and call it puppy love or, you know, I don't know, people roll their eyes at high school sweethearts. But I, I mean, I just, I think their feelings are so valid and that time of life is is also really exciting. It is. And I think it's really cool for them to see a work that's hailed as one of the most enduring classics in English literature focus on them and their lives and teenage feelings. That's kind of empowering. So I think I know 
your answer to this, but I think it'd be fun to talk a little bit about still. Do you think that Shakespeare should continue to be read in schools? I love Shakespeare, and I have had really positive experiences with teaching Shakespeare. I would be happy to let Shakespeare go in favor of more diverse texts or like, for example, if someone said you can either teach Romeo and Juliet or The Hate You Give, I would pick The Hate You Give every time. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's so much work to be done in diversifying curriculum across the country. But if that's not a factor, I do think that Shakespeare still feels so modern. And I think that the impact that Shakespeare's had on English-speaking culture is huge and gives students access to a lot of themes and phrases and plot lines and ideas that they're going to see repeated elsewhere often. That's such a good point. That's such a good point. And I just, I think it's really easy to bring the plays up to date and have really modern, deep conversations. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I have a lot of mixed feelings about it, as you do. We talk a lot about our frustration with the lack of diversity in many high school curriculum, but I don't think I've had as good of experiences teaching Shakespeare as you have. I've mostly taught Macbeth. I'm sure we'll do an episode on Macbeth. This year I taught Twelfth Night, and I enjoyed that a lot more, and I think it was a really fun way to talk about relationships and identity and gender and such important things. However, reading these plays takes so much time, so much class time. It's weeks and weeks. And when you're doing that, you're not teaching a million other books (laughs) that you could be teaching. And so that's, I think, where my struggle is. In a perfect world, each school would be near enough to some sort of theater so that instead of spending weeks and weeks reading the texts, there could be a little bit of prep time for the students so they know what they're getting into, see the play, and then dig into some more of that afterwards. Because I think with Shakespeare, so much of it is meant to be seen. I think we probably have some people listening who maybe are curious about Shakespeare and not sure how to approach it. And we're kind of getting at that with this watch and read or watch before you read. But what are some of your other pieces of advice for people who might want to explore Shakespeare further? I'm such a strong believer in watching instead of reading. That's really my main thing is I I often just don't even think it's worth reading unless you are truly a Shakespeare nerd and you truly enjoy it. But it is not worth slogging through when you can watch it and laugh and get so much enjoyment out of it because it's so much easier to just click with the language. Yeah, I completely agree. And if you watch one of the movie adaptations and you really love it, you can, if you really want to get deep into it, you can then pick up the text. You'll know what the important scenes are. You can go to those scenes and look more closely at the language. But I agree. I say... Unless you're in a class, unless you want to get really nerdy with it, which of course we 
wholeheartedly approve of, Shakespeare's for watching rather than reading. And if you can go to a live theatrical production, do it. Just jump on it. Even if you have no idea what the play is about or it's one of the lesser known Shakespeare plays, maybe not like Richard III, just don't. But but jump at the chance because there is nothing like seeing it live to make it click for you. And really good actors will make it understandable to the audience. They will communicate using facial expressions and their voices in a way that brings Shakespeare's language to life. In addition to watching, like you said, if you really do want to read it, there are a lot of versions that have the Shakespearean language on one side of the page and modern language translations on the other. So that makes it a lot easier. Yes, I'm all about No Fear Shakespeare. I know those kinds of books and things like Spark Notes are often banned from classrooms, but I'm fully in support of those things. Amen. And I, I mean, I didn't say this earlier, but I was a theater major before switching my, <laughs> my I major know that. to English education. So, so much of what I believe about Shakespeare and the fun that I have with it, I think comes from me being a theater kid in high school and then having that theater background and taking theater classes in college because I'm such a nerd about it. And so I really love getting to sort of, you know, direct many plays in class or do a lot of that stuff that you don't get to unless you're teaching a play. When we do a Midsummer Night's Dream episode, I'll talk about the time that I went to Shakespeare camp. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I cannot wait for that. I need to know everything about Shakespeare camp. I saw a Midsummer Night's Dream at the Royal Shakespeare Company, which was one of the highlights of my life. It was in Stratford-upon-Avon, where Shakespeare was born, and it was, yeah, the Royal Shakespeare Company, and it was so funny. I was laughing through the whole thing. I struggle, so Shakespeare's kind of like Jane Austen for me, where whatever I've seen the most recently is usually my favorite, but Midsummer's probably my favorite. I love Midsummer. I also love Much Ado About Nothing. I think primarily for that new Joss Whedon version, which I just cannot get enough of. I love that one. Now that you mentioned it, that's my new favorite too. (laughs) Okay, so this is a little bit of a tangent, but since we're kind of doing it anyways, do you have any other Shakespeare adaptations that you just love that you want to throw out? Oh, gosh. I think that uh, Ian McKellen's King Lear is really, really good. So I kind of near-ish where I grew up, like three hours away, there's a theater called the American Players Theater. And it's literally a theater in the woods. Like you hike up a hill to get to the outdoor theater. And they perform at least one or two Shakespeare plays every summer. And so, although I love a lot of Shakespeare movie adaptations, that live theater at American Players Theater always stands out in my mind as the absolute best Shakespeare I've seen ever. Besides Joss Whedon, do you have any favorites? I really, well, I think maybe my favorite favorite is 10 Things I Hate About You, adapted from The Taming of the Shrew, which is a play I have so many problems with, I think as we all should. But (laughs) that's a delightful movie. It's so good. The movie is so good. Since you were talking about Twelfth Night, I 
remembered She's the Man is fantastic. It's so good. Love She's the Man. I watched it with my students this year and they it's love so it fun. so much. It's so fun. And I I think that we'll see more Shakespeare adaptations because I just think it's so easy to update and I I love Shakespeare. I think that he's a genius and I know that it's nerdy and just such a typical English teacher opinion, but I just don't care. Call me basic. <laughs> I will not call you basic. I <laughs> I think it's lovely. And I'm super excited to hear what you've paired with Romeo and Juliet. So we'll be back with those pairings after a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor. We love audiobooks. They've made such a difference personally in my reading life. Not that it's about numbers, but I pretty much double my reading time when I add audiobooks. And I'm pretty sure you agree, Sarah. Oh, absolutely. I just finished an audiobook, and I think the next one I'm going to download from Libro FM is The Glass Hotel by Emily St. John Mandel. Oh, I'm so looking forward to that one. I just downloaded a few titles from Libro FM, and I think I'm going to do that thing where you listen to like two minutes of each one to see which narrator you like the best. Yes, that's a perfect strategy. We adore Libro FM over here at Novel Pairings. It's the only audiobook company that allows listeners to purchase audiobooks directly from their favorite indie bookstores. You can choose from tons of new releases and bestsellers, and even classics, all for the same price as other audiobook subscriptions. Listeners, if you believe in supporting indie bookstores, now is the time to try Libro FM. Right now, you can get three audiobooks for $15.99. That's three audiobooks for the price of one with the code NOVELPAIRINGS. Just enter code NOVELPAIRINGS at your checkout or click on the Libro FM link in our show notes. All right, Sarah, this is such a fun part of the podcast. I love hearing what you pick. So I'm curious to know your first book that you would pair with Romeo and Juliet. Okay, so this one could pair with pretty much any Shakespeare play. But the thing is, I think I might love books about Shakespeare more than I actually enjoy reading his plays. I have a ton of recommendations for books about the bard that I'll probably dole out across various Shakespeare episodes. But I think a great place to start if you're interested in reading more about Shakespeare himself is a little book called The Shakespeare Miscellany, by Ben and David Crystal. It's a tiny book full of fun trivia about Shakespeare's life and his plays. So there are facts and rumors about why people think Shakespeare may not have written his plays. There are facts about what Renaissance theater was really like, or even little details about how many actors have died during productions of Macbeth, which is so fascinating and crazy. So it's just a great introduction to Shakespeare the person and some of the facts and myths that have sparked the curiosity of so many readers and viewers. It's also a really great book to give as a gift for anyone who loves books and especially anyone who loves Shakespeare. That one also sounds like a good pairing with Shakespeare in Love, which we've expressed yes. our appreciation for. That's our unofficial pick of the week. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> What's your first pairing, Chelsea? 
My first pairing is The Opposite of Always by Jason Reynolds. And uh, just FYI, all of my pairings this week are YA, and I couldn't help it. Romeo and Juliet just lends itself so well to that. I love that. So The Opposite of Always by Jason Reynolds, who's one of my favorite YA authors. I love him. This is about main characters Jack and Kate who meet at a party and fall for each other immediately. Sounds familiar. (laughs) They have a bunch of stuff in common and they spend the whole night talking until the sun rises the next day. Also sounds familiar. (laughs) Their relationship launches and it's going great, but then Kate dies. And this sounds like the book could take a tragic turn. Thankfully, it does not take the Romeo and Juliet turn. But instead, when Kate dies, Jack is sent back to the moment that they met. And of course, he thinks he's lost his mind, but then he realizes that maybe he's supposed to save her, except time travel has unexpected consequences. And so playing with fate gets complicated and starts to affect other people that he loves around him. And so I chose this one because... The themes are there. It's got elements of Romeo and Juliet, the love at first conversation, grappling with fate and destiny and what's destined to be versus what choices do we make. And then I also think it touches on the different types of love we have and how they're important to us in different ways. And we sometimes have to prioritize the people in our lives above one another. And that's really hard to do. That sounds fantastic. And I love Jason Reynolds too. He's so talented. So talented. And I think that book would pair very well with my second pairing, which is If You Come Softly by Jacqueline Woodson. So this is a modern story of star-crossed lovers, and it's set at a fancy Manhattan private school. So we have Jeremiah, also called Maya in the book, and he commutes to Percy Academy from Brooklyn, and he's one of the few black students in attendance at this school. Our other main character is Alicia, or Ellie. She's a white Jewish student who seems to fit in, but she's struggling with some family issues when we meet her in this book. So they both feel very much like outsiders in this private school community. When they meet, they bond instantaneously. But there are a lot of external factors keeping them apart. Other than Maya's mother, no one seems to really understand or support their interracial relationship and they feel pressure to keep it secret from the people around them. This is one of those fantastic YA reads that reminds adult readers how deep and thoughtful and emotional teenagers can be. I really love books like that, and Woodson does that so phenomenally. I also love that Jacqueline Woodson, like Shakespeare, is a poet, so her writing is rich, lyrical, and just packed with imagery. She also manages to do so much depth of writing in a really short book. Most of her books are really short. This one is no exception. On audio, and the audio is fantastic, it's less than four hours. So you can really breeze through this one, but you probably will enjoy stopping and lingering in the language a little bit. This book is a tragedy, like Romeo and Juliet, so you should know that going in. It deals with some dark and heavy topics, But it's YA, so it's done in a way that's appropriately intense, but still manageable for young readers. And I just love everything by Jacqueline Woodson, so I could not put this one in a pairing. 
I haven't read this one yet. I'm going to have to listen to it because I do love her books on audio. Uh, her language read aloud is perfect. I mean, very much like Shakespeare. I feel like Jacqueline Woodson's writing is meant to be heard. Oh, yeah, I can totally agree with that. So my next pick is When Dimple Met Rishi by Sandhya Menon. And this is another really super fun YA romance. This one is probably less serious than the others that we've talked about so far. It's it's really just pure delight. So Dimple is gearing up for the next phase of her life. She's ready to leave home, go to college, and become a badass coder. And her mom, meanwhile, is obsessed with finding her the, quote, ideal Indian husband. <laughs> Dimple wants none of that. Meanwhile, Rishi is a hopeless romantic who couldn't be more excited to meet his future wife and fall in love. He very much falls in line with a Romeo in that respect where love and having a family and getting married is truly what he wants. And I think that's rare for us to see that in a male character because that's stereotypically like the girl role. So his parents have a girl in mind, and he meets her at a summer coding program, so you can see where this is going. Cute. Their parents didn't exactly intend for them to meet this soon, but they're like, hey, it works. Rishi, Dimple, you two are meant to be together, and Dimple is not having any of it, but we have a little enemies to lovers romance, and watching their relationship develop from a friendship into love is definitely not insta-love. Um, but the theme of sort of following what your parents want for you versus embarking on your own adventure is very present in this book. And then the question of what exactly is love and where does love fit in the importance of other things in life is definitely present. And this is one of my favorite YA books. It's so cute. What is your next pick, Sarah? Okay, my final pick is Circe by Madeline Miller. And I know this pick is kind of out there, and I might regret the fact that I brought this book up so early when we eventually get to our Odyssey episode, but I recently taught Circe, and as I was revisiting Romeo and Juliet, I couldn't stop thinking about some of the thematic connections. So I'll, let me give a quick summary, and then I'll explain more about those themes. Circe is a novel that takes a minor character from the Odyssey, the witch Circe, who Odysseus spends a year with on his journey home, and the book explores her life. Circe's a goddess, but she lacks the power and authority that most of her kind have, but she makes up for that in learning how to use plants to make magic potions and how to cast magic spells. Throughout the book, we get to see her meet and form relationships with many different figures from Greek mythology, including Daedalus, of course, Odysseus, and even the Minotaur. The connection for me to Romeo and Juliet is that this book does really interesting things with time. Circe is an immortal character, and that fact changes her relationships in really surprising ways. So she knows she's going to live forever, but many of the humans she interacts with, of course, are not going to. So a year with Odysseus to Circe is just a drop in the bucket of her life. In Romeo and Juliet, we have the exact opposite sense of time. The play takes place in a manner of days, and because the characters are so young, they make impulsive decisions as if there won't be a tomorrow. And so I think it would be really interesting to read these two or to watch a version of Romeo and Juliet 
once you've read Circe and see how these two texts explore how our own sense of time changes the way we view our relationships. Ooh, I love an out there pick. (laughs) Thank you. I hope I sold it well enough. I totally think so. And I think that Circe deals a lot with fate as well, because we have these characters who are often told their fates by like gods and people who have knowledge of the future, and then they have to play that out. And I think that that is, that's different than Romeo and Juliet, where the characters don't know what's going to happen to them, but they're questioning fate and what's going to come up for them. Yeah, and both of the texts really exist in these worlds where fate and and predestination are taken as as fact. I think that's always an interesting premise to read about. What is your final pick, Chelsea? My final pick is The Sun is Also a Star by Nicola Yoon. And this one also deals with time in an interesting way. And it's definitely young adult insta-love at its cheesiest. So (laughs) if that's not your thing, move along. But it also includes some really important themes about family, culture, and immigration. So Daniel and Natasha meet by chance and Daniel falls hard. He is definitely like Romeo. And I love, I love these young adult books that explore boys with really strong emotions and who really like romance because guys can be super romantic too. And Natasha's reluctant to follow her heart and she has stuff to do like dire important stuff to do. Her family is about to be deported to Jamaica and she's on her way to fight it. So their relationship seems doomed from the start, much like Romeo and Juliet, definitely a star-crossed lovers situation. But we see these young characters take a chance on each other and explore their relationship anyway. And it also matches Romeo and Juliet because it takes place in such a short time span, just over the course of one day. And When I read YA Lit, I often have to remember just how essential and pressing and dire the present moment feels to teenagers. The now is now mentality that I feel like Romeo and Juliet have, that's just the way that teenagers are wired. They're not necessarily thinking ahead to future consequences. They are living in the moment in the truest sense of it. I almost feel a little bit jealous of that often because I so struggle with living in the moment. But Daniel and Natasha are definitely more savvy than Romeo and Juliet. So no worries about, you know, too rash of decisions or anything there. But they really do explore that let's just give it our all right now because the present is all we've got. Oh, I love that so much. All right. So, Sarah, I'm really excited to hear about your pick of the week. So it's hard to narrow down because there's so much Shakespeare pop culture stuff. But I went with a podcast called Don't Quill the Messenger, which is a great name for a podcast. (laughs) Have you listened to this? No, but I love a pun. (laughs) I haven't listened to the whole thing, but I I look forward to listening to more as we keep talking about Shakespeare together. So this is a podcast about Oxfordians. Do you know about Oxfordians and their beliefs about Shakespeare? 
just a little bit, but I have to admit that the whole Shakespeare controversy never really interested me that much. I have always been like, I don't, I don't care who he is. I just like his place. Yeah, that's how I feel too. And I would not subscribe to these Oxfordian beliefs. This is a group of people who believe that Shakespeare's works were actually written by this guy, Edward de Vere, who was the Duke of Oxford. And I got really interested in this because there was a um, New Yorker magazine article about Oxfordians when Antonin Scalia died a couple years ago. And I guess Antonin Scalia was an Oxfordian and many, many members of the United States Supreme Court have been Oxfordians. They really don't believe that William Shakespeare wrote his plays and they really believe this other dude did. And I just thought that was fascinating. Like, how many people believe this? How many people subscribe or are like card-carrying members of the Oxfordian society? And then what percentage of our Supreme Court believes this? It's just kind of mind-blowing to me. So this podcast is about, I mean, it's put out by people who believe this. They are Oxfordian. So it's very biased, but it's a really interesting look at the reasons they think that Shakespeare couldn't have been the author, which, to be quite honest, have a lot to do with snobbery and elitism and being quite classist. So these episodes did not convince me at all, but it was an interesting peek into this belief system of people who really don't think that a commoner could have done the great works that he did. And then I also, of course, recommend reading that New Yorker article about the Supreme Court and Oxfordians, and we'll put a link to that in our show notes. That is such a fascinating crossover. I had no idea. I know. It's kind of mind-blowing and really an interesting look at elitism in politics. <laughs> I was going to say, it, it it makes sense when you explain it that way and when you do pull out the elitist history of the this idea of Shakespeare not being Shakespeare. I, I do wonder if it, it has something to do with where these people were educated, if the snobbery of places like Harvard Law or wherever have anything to do with that. I'm That's so interesting. Yeah, that's such a good question. I'd love a whole podcast done from like an outsider's perspective on the Oxfordians and how these beliefs might have developed. Yeah, I'm more interested in like the the culture of that and the secret society feel to it. Totally. You should definitely read the New Yorker article then. What is your pick of the week, Chelsea? My pick is also a podcast. It is called No Holds Barred, but Barred like Shakespeare the Bard. <laughs> I like that we both have puns. Shakespeare would be very <laughs> proud of us. <laughs> he sure would. <laughs> so... This is not a podcast that I regularly listen to or subscribe to, but they have these specific episodes called So You're Going to See Shakespeare. And these episodes are about half hour and they're to prep you before seeing the plays. So they give a little plot summary and just the important information so that if you're going to see a performance of a Shakespeare play that you don't know very well, you can enjoy the performance without having to wonder, you know, what the heck they're saying or what's going on. Because I think it totally helps to have some of that background knowledge. So if you find out 
like, oh, hey, they are doing Macbeth at the theater downtown, and we're just going to go ahead and get tickets, but you want a little bit of background before you go see the show, I recommend downloading No Holds Barred, so you're going to see Shakespeare, the episode for Macbeth, for instance. That is so cool. I did not know this existed, and I will definitely be checking it out. All right, Chelsea. Well, it has been so fun talking about Romeo and Juliet and all things Shakespeare with you. I really can't wait for our next Shakespeare episode. We'll have to talk about what play we do next. Yeah, maybe listeners have some opinions. So let us know if there's a certain Shakespeare play that really appeals to you for us to discuss. That's a great idea. I'd love to do a listener suggested play. In the meantime, for more classic lit enthusiasm and podcast news, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Instagram is at Novel Pairings Pod. Twitter is just at Novel Pairings. We'd love to know whether you watch Romeo and Juliet, especially the Leonardo DiCaprio version, (laughs) or pick up any of the books we mentioned today. So feel free to tag us on social media or send us a DM. As a brand new podcast, we'd love your support in spreading the word about novel pairings. So tell your friends about us by writing a review on Apple Podcasts or sharing our most recent episode on social media. We declare, after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How soon one tires of anything than of a book. We'll be back soon with an episode on The Joy Luck Club by Amy Tan.